0: This morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and without us, that without us, how I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me.
1: Thank you, Jen. So according to uh, some research that was done in 2018 that was the most in, most recent year that I found when I did sort of a quick quick study quick look at this the fitness industry in 2018 had boomed to being a 94 billion dollar global industry 94 billion dollars were spent on being in shape being fit and the rate of growth in recent years has been 8.7% each year. That is massive. 8.7% increase growth in the fitness in- industry. Hey, being fit is in. Working out is in. I'll admit I've hopped on the fitness bandwagon. I go running the first 30 years of my life. You couldn't get me out of the couch. Uh, but, but now I, I run. I, I try to stay in shape. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> the question I want to ask us collectively if we work out, or even if we don't, even if we wish we worked out, right? What is our motivation for working out? <clears throat> what, what is it that that boy? I wish I want to get out there. Or if you do get out there, you go to the gym, you hire the personal trainer, you do whatever it is. What is it that motivates us? Is it is it is it that you know you want to be healthy, right? You want you want to be healthy and you want to live longer. Um. Or is it that if you don't, then on a windy day your arm flab flaps in the wind? Is it because you want to feel good, or is it because you want to look good? Today we're continuing in a series we began last week, and and this is a series really what it's about, uh, which is really pretty much what every sermon's about. <laughs> That little secret there, um, is about following Jesus. What does it look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Or another way of putting that is, what does it mean to be a Christian? Christian just means little Christ. That's what the word means, little Christ. Like, like uh, um, what's his name? Dr. Evil, the mini-me. You guys remember mini-me, right? He's, he's like little Dr. Evil. Uh, a Christian is little Christ, little Jesus, one that seeks to emulate and be like Jesus. So we're exploring what does that look like to be a, a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to surrender to the way of God revealed in Jesus? Jesus surrenders himself completely and fully to his heavenly Father. What does it look like for us to surrender ourselves in the same way? Now here's the thing. You know, a pastor starts talking about surrender, right? This is when we, you know, we start to like check our, our watches, you know? Like, oh man, here we go. Talking about surre- I gotta surrender. got to surrender to God, you know, we, we do not like this idea of surrendering, right? Particularly Americans, we don't even surrender to anything, right? Uh, particularly in our, in our sort of the culture we live in today, like surrendering, like when somebody starts saying you should surrender, that's the kind of thing that an oppressive regime says to people to keep them in line, right? You need to surrender to the cause, you know, that sort of thing. It's all sort of caught up in these sort of power trips, power structures, trying to get people to surrender. So we don't don't like this idea of surrendering. But here's the thing. Here's what we need to realize. We are all surrendered to something, whether we like it or not. You can't not be surrendered to something. We're all surrendered to something. Let me me give you kind kind of a trite example, okay? Have you ever found yourself completely sucked into a TV show? Right, you you find some new TV show, and now it's like, it's literally, it's like all you can think about. You're like commuting to work, you're on the train to work. You're on your way back from work, we'll put that, you're on your way back from work, at the end of the day, you're on the the commuter rail, and the commuter rail breaks down, and you're going to be stuck there for an hour, and you're pumped. Because you can, you can watch another episode on your phone. You don't have to get home and take care of the kids, right? And you can, stay, you can watch another episode because you're sucked into this. And this is all you think about, right? During the day, you're like, I wonder what's going to happen in episode five. I, this, this happened to me with The Office. I was a latecomer to The Office. Didn't realize its brilliance and, uh, until basically the show was over. And then I was able to watch it on Hulu. And you just get sucked in, right? I was surrendered to it. My time, my effort, my energy, other things you kind of push to the side because I was surrendered to that. You see, we we all become surrendered to lots of different things. Many of us are surrendered to our standard of living we have a standard of living, either we've achieved that standard of living, we're able to live that life, or maybe we're trying to get to a certain standard of living, but even if we're already there, even if we're like, I don't need any more money, I don't need any more more of what I have, I don't need more, I'm content with what I have, but boy, we're surrendered to that. Like, we, we can't imagine if I didn't have that, like if I lost my job or I got a pay cut, well, i just have to get another job. I, I'm surrendered to that. I would, I would just have to work more hours. I'd have to find another job so that I could keep the mortgage, so that I could keep the car payment, right? I'm surrendered to my car payment, surrendered to my mortgage, surrendered to this way of life, and I'll do whatever is necessary to maintain that. We're all surrendered to something. Some of us are surrendered to food, Right? I could could live in a different country. I could live in a different house. But don't tell me to change my diet. Don't tell me to stop eating the things that I like to eat. I'm surrendered to that. Surrendered to food. Some people are surrendered to sex. And and all these different things that we're surrendered to, it'll even lead us. We'll start telling lies. We'll start painting different narratives just so that we can maintain this thing that we are surrendered. You see... Friends, we're all surrendered to something. So the, the, we, we are like magnets, you know what I mean? We're like magnets, and magnets, they always get stuck to something. A magnet eventually is going to find something to get stuck to. And so all we're suggesting here, all that the scriptures here point us to is, hey, listen, if you're going to be stuck to something, why not be stuck to God? Why not surrender yourself to God? And so that's really the the point of this series is we're looking at surrendering. And this season that leads up to Easter, this season in the life of the church, is a season in which we often focus even more on this notion of surrendering. That just as Jesus, in the final portion of his life and in the final weeks of his life, surrendered himself more and more to the will of the Father, even to the point that he was willing to go to the cross. We look at that and we are called, invited to surrender as well. We have in in the back, in the the uh, gathering place where we gather for coffee and, and fellowship. There's that purple tree, and that's the, our tree of surrender. It's just there to remind us of this season to surrender. You're invited if you want to. There are leaves you can write down. What are maybe those things in my life? The truth of the matter is the things that I'm surrendered to, and I need to surrender to God, we invite you to write those on the leaves, put them on the, on the tree. You can write in code if you're afraid somebody's going to know what you're talking about. That's fine. But it's an opportunity. We're inviting you to surrender. Now, here's the thing. Here's what this particular series that we're going through right now warns us about. Right? So what I'm here telling you, surrender, surrender to God, surrender to God. But here's the thing. Here's, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Oftentimes, surrendering to God will seem absolutely foolish. That when we look at what it means to surrender to God, it will feel and seem very foolish. It will seem as foolish as if you were paddling a canoe towards a waterfall. I shared a story last week about a time when this happened to me. I kind of got confused. I was paddling in a canoe, uh, kind of got distracted by the landscape, mesmerized by the beauty of my surroundings, and failed to notice that I was about to go over a dam, missed a, a sign warning me about this. And finally I realized it, I turned around, I paddled, I managed to get away, but, but I remember thinking, what about the people that were driving their cars over this bridge that went right by where I was, and I'm sure many of them saw me, saw me paddling towards this waterfall, what are they thinking of this guy? Who is that crazy fool paddling towards the waterfall? And what I want to suggest to you is that surrendering ourselves to God oftentimes will seem and feel as foolish as if you were paddling towards a waterfall. We, we see this. We see the foolishness of this way of life. It comes into full focus in this passage here. The Apostle Paul uh, writing to this Christian community in the city of Corinth in modern-day Greece, and he's writing to them. And, and listen to what he says here, the foolishness of his way of living. Um, verse 9, I'll just highlight that one. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. He's using this analogy. He's saying that his life, surrendered to and following Jesus, is a lot like, and and this is think Russell Crowe, think gladiator, right? Think convicted criminal condemned to die. This is an, someone who society has shunned, has shamed, has said, you are not even worthy to live. In fact, we think so lowly of you that we're just going to have fun watching you kill yourself. That's what it was. It was these sporting events, right? They, they'd come into the, the arena and they'd have all kinds of different events. But the main attraction, right, the, 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 you know, the one that comes on at midnight, Right, they tell you that it starts at 7 o'clock and it really doesn't come on till midnight. You guys know what I'm talking about when you pay, pay-per-view? Well, yeah, the midnight, the final one, the one at the end of the procession, is these convicted criminals fighting each other to the death in front of a crowd, laughing and cheering them on. And Paul's saying, yeah, that, that, that's what it's like to follow Jesus. It's foolish. You look like a fool. And and then then he he goes into specifically, literally, what he's actually dealing with. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. Here, Paul's talking about his actual lived (coughs) experience. And what he's highlighting here, what he's highlighting is the shame of it all. He's highlighting the shame that is associated with his following Jesus. And and so as we look at this idea of surrendering ourselves to God and embracing the foolishness of following Jesus, the particular point that emerges from this text that I want to highlight is that we are encouraged to embrace shame. We are encouraged to embrace shame. That's what Paul is identifying here: is the way in which he's embraced shame, and the way he describes his situation, he describes it in a way that highlights the shame. He highlights the shame of it over the pain of it. Right? You could look at you could look at Paul's situation, and you could describe it in a different way. You could look at like sort of the pain of it, right? Like, oh, you're going to go. You know, he's using this analogy of gladiators fighting each other to the death. And he could describe the pain of that, but he doesn't. He describes the shame of it. He says, we're going to be on display. It's like we're on display, like we are a spectacle. It's the shame of it that he wants to highlight. When he highlights his actual situation, he's hungry, thirsty, brutally treated, and homeless, he realizes that to the people in Corinth, what's so appalling about that is not just that he's thirsty or hungry, but that in that culture, it was shameful. That there was stark class differences, and, and to be a part of this lower class, that homeless, hungry, dressed in rags, it's the shame of it all. Paul's saying that when we follow Jesus, the foolishness of this includes a willingness to embrace shame. Paul I- embraces shame. Isn't it true that we run from shame? I mean, we run from it. I mean, we paddle away from shame like you're paddling away from a waterfall. We paddle away from shame, and and it's shame even more so than pain. It's shame even more so than pain. Think of it this way. I think that for many of us, if you were to lose your job or your job wasn't paying the bills the way you hoped that it would, and, and, and there are consequences of that, right? So I'm like, now you're not, you're not sure if you're going to uh, you know, be able to eat the same way. You're not sure if you're going to afford the house. And, and there's, so there's some sort of suffering involved. Like maybe you're going to have to sleep in a smaller place. won't be quite as comfortable. But isn't it true for most of us? It's the shame that we run from. It's the shame of having to tell people why you, you can't afford that house anymore. It's the shame of, of having to tell your kids why you can't take them out to eat tonight. It's the shame of it. Even more so than the pain. I mean, we, 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 we pursue, excuse me, we run from shame and we pursue honor, don't we? I mean, I think of this even, I would suggest that for many people when they buy a car, not everybody, a lot of people when you buy a car and if you spend money um, beyond what is probably necessary to just get from point A to point B, right? There's some cars, get you from point A to point B. But we usually, when we buy a car, we think beyond just point A and point B some other things involved, and we do think in terms of comfort, you know, we, we do, like, oh, this seat, this feels really good, and I like the heated seats, and, and whatever. I mean, so there's comfort involved, but isn't it true that for many of us, it's as much a matter of status as anything else? It's, it's we, want, we want people to see us in this car. They want, we want our neighbors to see the kind of car that we're pulling out of the driveway in. We, we pursue honor, and we run from shame. I asked you earlier, what motivates you to work out? Is it to feel good? That's health, right? That's avoiding pain. Or is it to look good? See, that, that's that's, the whole fitness industry, I would suggest most people are running from shame. And this booming industry is because we're just, we are running from shame. The church in Corinth, Paul's writing to, they were running from shame. They were running from shame, and and what they wanted is they wanted their religion. They were Christians. They wanted their religion to not be so shameful. If they were going to be known as Christians, they they didn't want it to be sort of a shameful thing in their culture. And and in that society, the, the way that your religion was not shameful is if you had some sort of big shot running it. If you had somebody... Uh, who society could really look up to and value and, and and you could be associated with that particular religious leader that was honored in by those cultural values it sort of like validated your religion and in that society we talked about this last week, there was this great uh, respect for or value on people who could communicate really well, like Greek rhetoric, all of that you know the rhetorical tradition and whatnot and so and so what they, they wanted they wanted to make sure that they had a leader that that could impress people with their eloquence and impress people with their sophistication because that would sort of validate their religion. It's actually not all that different. You look back in the Old Testament when the, the people of Israel, they looked around and all the nations around them had kings. And they're like, look, if we're going to be a legit nation, we've got to have a king too. Like That's what's in. Having a king is in, so we need to have a king as well. You see, it was running from shame. And they're running from shame. They, they want to have a religion that, that can be socially respectable. Again, when, when, Paul, when Paul talks uh, about how he's hungry and he's thirsty and he's homeless, what he's recognized is that the, most of the people in Corinth are like, they, they, would never, they would never go that way. They would never live that life. And it's not even a matter of the pain so much as the shame involved. They want to have a faith in which they can follow Jesus, but they can also hold on to their social values. Isn't that true for us as well, for many of us? I mean, we, we want to follow Jesus, but we also want to make sure that, you know, we are respected by our culture's values. So if I can have both, that, that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Here, and Paul says, no, if, if, you, if you really surrender to Jesus, you'll be willing to embrace shame. Now, he's not saying we should try to be shameful, right? This isn't like some sort of, you know, shame version of masochism. It's not like, well, I should just try to be as unappealing to society as possible. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when you follow Jesus, you shouldn't be concerned about whether or not society will shame you. No, it's like you're trying to be shameful. Not at all, actually. I mean, in other places he talks about it's good to have a good reputation amongst outsiders for the purpose of being able to communicate the gospel to them. I mean, he's not saying you should try to be shameful, but what he's saying is that your surrender to Jesus, he says if it's an authentic surrender, then you're no longer worried about. That's, you're, not, you're not pursuing that honor. It's okay. You can embrace cultural shame. The question is, What is it that enables Paul to embrace shame? What is it? What is it that enables him to embrace shame? What I'm about to say first here is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Paul's able to embrace shame because his worth and his value isn't in what others think of him. His own personal worth, his own value isn't in what other people think of him. This is what he says here in verse 3, right? <clears throat> I care very little <laughs> if I am judged by you or by any human court. I mean, think about that. I mean, who, who really can honestly say that? He's saying, I don't, I don't care. My worth and my value aren't what others think. Now, listen, he's not saying, and we've got to be careful there. It's not like he's saying, look, I just don't care what anybody thinks. Sort of, a, a, sort of an apathy, you know? I don't care. Why do I? I don't care what they think, you know? Uh, I'm not going to listen to them. Why should I listen to them, right? What's interesting here is that if you really, if your worth and your value is not in what other people think of you, you'll actually listen to them more carefully. You'll actually be able to receive their criticism and their feedback because the reason why most of us don't listen is because it, it, hurt, it affects our worth and our value. See, the apathetic person, I don't care what they think. And so, but, but the truth of the matter is that apathetic person, they actually really do care what others think. They just build walls. They put walls up. They put walls up. I'm not going to listen to what that person says. I don't care what they think. No, if you really didn't care what they think, you could actually listen to what they have to say. And you could could say, well, maybe they have something that I should change my life that way. That would benefit me more. But you're able to do that because your worth and your value isn't in what they think. So Paul's not talking about apathy here. No, but his worth and his value isn't in what other people think. Now, (laughs) what enables Paul to embrace shame? What enables Paul to not find his worth and his value in what others think? Paul's validation. Paul's worth and his value comes entirely from God. Paul's worth and his value, his validation comes entirely from God. You know, friends, we, we need validation. This is important to recognize. We we do need this. It's an it's something we, it's instinctual. It, it's probably even, it's even like a survival instinct you know? I mean, like a pack of wolves. You got a pack of wolves, and, and, and those wolves, um, they need to be validated by the other wolves. If the other wolves in the pack don't affirm them, well, that might mean they don't get to eat tonight, right? Um, so, in a similar sense, we're like that. Like we, we need the validation. We, we feel this need for validation. Our survival sort of depends on it, but, but here, here's where Paul here's where Paul really embraces this foolishness is that he says, listen, I need validation, but I don't need earthly validation. All I need is the validation of God. Let's unpack this a little bit here again. Verses three through five, what I'm really focusing in on here. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, I love those two verses because right there in those two verses, Paul completely undermines the two uh, fundamental sources of, a, of moral authority that have emerged in our world. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, it, it, We often talk about how um, the difference between Eastern cultures and Western, Western civilization is that Eastern society is... is, is collective there's much more of a collective sense community sense that the community is in some sense more important than the individual valued more than the individual and in western civilization we value the individual over the collective and what that what emerges from that is that in, in eastern cultures you you'll you'll get sort of shame cultures right so in other words what you should do what is appropriate what is inappropriate is determined by the culture and so your your shame is determined It's a shame culture. Whatever the culture says, then that is going to determine what's right and wrong for you. In Western society, increasingly what has happened is it's not the collective, it's the individual that determines what's right or wrong, right? And so this is where the conscience comes in. This is why the conscience has played such an important role in moral reasoning in Western civilization because as individuals, it's like, well, my conscience is what determines what's right or wrong. Paul, in these verses, he says neither one of those work. He's like, I don't care what society thinks. I don't trust what society thinks. He's like, I don't even trust what I think, right? You see, isn't that amazing? He's like, he says, um, my conscience is clear. So Paul certainly does think we should listen to our conscience. He believes the conscience is something that is given to us by God. But Paul, understanding his theology, he realizes that our conscience is also tainted by our sin and also just by our finitude, right? just our, 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 our myopic perspective on things, and by our sin, taints our conscience. So he's like, you know, I can't trust what culture tells me, and I can't even trust what I tell myself. So I don't, I don't seek my own personal, I don't validate myself, I don't validate, seek validation from others. You know, I, I think this idea that we can't really even trust our conscience, I've thought about this a lot it, it, it ought to instill in us a humble reluctancy to pass judgment in any situation. The reality is we, we have to, just living life, you have to make judgments. You have to pass judgments. I mean, I know this even as a pastor, and I hate it. I hate it. There are times when I have to pass judgment. I have to make a decision. Is this, you know, is this person the right person for this position? And, 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 and sometimes it's like I'm even having to judge their character and I hate it because I don't know. Like, is this judgment, is it tainted by my own sin, my own insecurities, my own whatever? So whenever I have to do that, there's this reluctancy about it. We should all have that, a sort of humble reluctancy. I I think this is important, especially even for us, you know, sort of Bible-believing Christians, you need to realize, you notice what Paul's saying here. Paul's even saying, look, you can't just even, like, say, well, the Bible tells me what to do. the bible The Bible, the Bible gives me all. That. Paul's like, no, listen. The Bible gives you a foundation, but it doesn't give you an answer to every question. It doesn't give you an answer for every situation. When you get somebody who they quote a Bible verse to justify everything that they do, Paul recognized he he can't do that because even the way he interprets it might might be off. He realizes there's a humility that in the end only God really knows. Sort of a humble reluctancy involved here. Only God's judgment is accurate. Our judgments, our society's judgments, are always in the dark. So again, Paul, he doesn't care what others think, he doesn't care what he thinks, he just seeks God's validation. Again, on one hand, this makes sense, right? We we see this. It makes sense. Only God has clarity on these things. So it would make sense to just seek God's validation. But there's also something here that's a little bit frightening. It is daunting when you realize that God's validation is the only one that matters. It ought to sort of instill in us there's a sense of terror involved in this, right? Because God sees everything. This is what he's getting at in verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing until the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. God will expose what God has known throughout all eternity. He will expose the motives of our hearts. He sees everything, and that is daunting. Right? We can fool others. To a certain extent, we can fool other people. But right, I, I can show up to work with a smile on my face, and nobody knows that I cussed out the guy in traffic on the way in when he cut me off. Nobody knows. I can work really hard on a twenty-five minute presentation for work. I can work really hard on a forty-minute sermon, and, and and maybe if it's just up to that forty minutes, I might be able to really impress people. But God sees everything. I can put makeup on. I can purchase clothes that accentuate what I've got and hide what I don't have. I can fool people and maybe win their validation, but not God. Only a fool, (laughs) only a fool would seek to find their validation in. That's why I think our natural inclination is to reject God. It's often been said of Christianity that Christians buy into a wish fulfillment. So they believe in God because they really want him to be there. I would suggest the opposite is just, if not more true. People don't believe in God because they don't want him. Because if he is there, all of a sudden, that's where my validation comes from, and that is terrifying. Friends, this is where we get to the heart of the gospel. This is where we get to the heart of the Christian faith. When we stand before God, when he shines his light, On our sin. When we turn to Him in faith and in trust, guess what? He praises us instead of shaming us. The heart of the Christian faith is that we have a God who praises us instead of shaming us. Look with me, if you will, if you'll indulge me for a few more moments here. Romans chapter 10. And we're going to put this up on the screen. It's also on page. Uh, 1,121 in your pew bibles we're going to look here at romans chapter 10 verses 5 through 11 romans 10 verses 5 through 11 and, and these verses here um, they in many ways they just get right at the heart of everything that the apostle paul understands about the christian faith romans 10 5 through 11 they sit right at the center of this section of the letter of romans this letter that he wrote to the church in rome Romans 10 5 through 11 sits at the center of chapters 9 through 11 which if you look at it come in the form I'm going to I'm going to geek out here a little bit so bear with me here. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 is in the form of a chiasm which is a literary device in which what what it takes place at the beginning at the beginning of the first section parallels and corresponds to the last thing in the final section and then the second thing that happens in the first section corresponds to the second the last thing in the last section moving all the way into the middle, and then in the middle, you get the heart of the whole argument. So what we're going to look at is ends up being the, the heart of Paul's argument. Another way of putting this, you, you can't really understand Romans 9 without reading it in light of Romans 11, um, which has massive implications for all kinds of theology, which I won't get into right now. But you get into the center of Romans chapter 10, and you get the heart of the Christian faith. And let me read to you what it says here. Verse 5, Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, what is, Paul, or what is Paul doing here? He's actually quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. First, he quotes from Leviticus, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Second part of there, he's quoting from, but then revising a, a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30, part of the first uh, five books of the Bible attributed to Moses. And these chapters in Deuteronomy had become incredibly important to the, to the Israelites living in Paul's day. Just quickly, what, what goes on there is in, in chapters 28 and 29. Uh, uh, Moses, through Moses, God talks about, says to the people of Israel, he says, listen, if you obey me, if you follow me, if you do what is right, I'm going to bless you. Um, And if you don't, (laughs) if you don't do what I say and you go a different way, well, then there's going to come judgment and you're going to be, you're going to be exiled. And of course, when you look at the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, it basically just proves that, well, okay, what Moses said was right. Because this is exactly what happens when we read the Old Testament. The Israelites turned away from God. They went into exile. They they received his judgment in this sense. And, And so the people living in Paul's day, they were still living in this. They're still sort of living in this realization that they had been separated from God because of their sin. But in Deuteronomy 30, it goes on to say there will come a time when God will return. There will come a time when he will forgive his people, Israel. There will come a time when he will restore them and he will come and he will write his law on their hearts. He will be reconciled to them. And he talks about it's going to come from God. It's not going to be because of anything that they did. It's not like, it's not that they're going to be able to reach up into heaven and pull the law down or reach down into the depths and pull the law down. It's a way of saying it's just going to come to them. God is going to bring his truth into their hearts, not anything that they do. And Paul has come to understand that what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, this is what has happened in the person of Jesus. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the law, has come to forgive and to renew and to restore his people. And so he rewrites this passage in Deuteronomy 30 and just puts Jesus right in the middle of it. Then he goes on. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's saying your sin has separated you from God. Our sin has separated us from God. But now God has provided a way that if we just put our trust in him and put our faith in him, then we are reconciled to him, we are restored to him. And then look what it says here in verse 11. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The heart of the Christian faith is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has come, gave his life to forgive us of our sin, to absorb the weight of that sin, to absorb the weight of that shame. You know, when you forgive somebody, you're not just taking their sin, you're absorbing the shame of it. When when a wife forgives her husband of adultery, She's not just forgiving the sin. She's taking that shame, that shame that should be his. She's taking it upon herself. People look at and say, you're a fool. You're a fool. Why would you, why would you forgive? You're a fool. for Look what, what he shamed you. Embracing that shame. On the cross, that's what Jesus did. Jesus entered into our shame to take it from us. This, this is a really, I don't know why this, this is a silly illustration, but for some reason, it's really, it's really struck me. The movie Billy Madison, I think it's Billy Madison, uh, Adam Sandler, I can't remember what the deal is. He ends up like teaching, he's with a bunch of little kindergartners uh, in class or something like that. I can't remember why, but one of the kids pees his pants. And there's this scene where the kid is like, he's like standing by a wall because he doesn't want anybody to see. He's ashamed. And Billy Madison, Adam Sandler's character, he goes and he, he gets water and he splashes it on his own pants. And and, and, then he's, and then he goes over and he shows the other kids. He's like, look, man, you know, peeing's cool, right? What's going on in there? He has entered into that little kid's shame. And because he's cool... He's like the cool adult because he's righteous, which is really just a religious term for cool. Because he's righteous, see, see now, now that shame is erased. And it's because he's righteous, because he's cool, that it undoes that shame. Friends, in the same sense, God, who's the only one who's really cool, the only one who's truly righteous. He enters into that shame. He's willing to embrace that shame. True love is willing to embrace shame. And that's what God has done for us. Friends, how many of us right now are spending so much time and so much effort paddling away from shame. Like someone in a canoe who's about to go over a waterfall, we are paddling away as far as we can from that shame. The heart of the gospel is that we can embrace shame, we can live for God. We don't have to live by these cultural values that we are surrendered to. God loves us. God embraces us, not on the basis of anything that we do, but entirely on the basis of his grace. We now come to our time of communion. Ushers, you can... Come forward and, and begin to set up. We're going to do communion like we did last week. And the ushers will set up two stations, one over here by the piano and one over here by this wall. And uh, we invite you to come forward if you're comfortable doing that. If not, feel free to just sit there and pray. There's no shame in that. But we invite you to come forward. There will be two stations here. We'll have you come uh, from the outside. When I, when I instruct you to, you can come up on the outside, feel free to come up. You'll take the elements right there. Go ahead and take them, um, and then you can return down the center aisle. If you would like, feel free to take a moment um, to kneel uh, right here uh, before the cross. Um, Take your time. You don't need to rush this, but you'll just take the elements, and then you can return to your seat down the middle. This is an opportunity. For us to embrace the gospel, to see what Jesus has done for us. That these elements, they represent the blood, the blood and the body of Christ. Jesus, who gave himself, entered into our shame, that we might be validated. I do want to let you know that the, the middle, yeah, the middle cup is gluten-free. So it will not be the bread of death for you. It will be the bread of life. If you are gluten-free, feel free to take that. But we encourage you to come forward and take this. Uh, to allow the grace of God uh, to penetrate your heart and free you from this need to pursue validation in anything other than in God. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you that our worth and our value is in you. Our worth and our value comes not from anything in us, but entirely because of your love God, I pray that this morning as we take these elements, this symbolic act, Lord, it would be a symbolic act that reflects hearts that are surrendering ourselves to you and that in so doing, God, we would be free from the slavery that so many of us find ourselves in, in this pursuit of worldly validation. God, as we surrender ourselves to you, as we receive your grace, God, may we be set free from shame. In Jesus' name we pray.